Hello, I'm Michael Barber. I was head of delivery for Tony Blair, and since then I've worked with governments around the world to help them deliver results that people can see and feel and benefit from. During my travels, I saw in my work a pattern of accomplishment that underpins success. And as a historian, I firmly believe we can see that pattern of accomplishment in history too. As a student, I specialised in American history and especially slavery and civil rights. In 1977, I travelled through the Deep South and saw for myself how raw those conflicts were. Since then, I've worked on education in Louisiana and other southern states and seen how the fight for justice continues to this day. During lockdown, I was transported back there when I heard the music of Florence Price on the radio. Florence was composing classical music in Arkansas more than a hundred years ago, and now her compositions are being revived by British pianist and scholar Dr. Samantha Age, who has Nigerian and Jamaican heritage. This is the Accomplishment Podcast. Join me and award-winning musicologist Samantha Ege to explore the extraordinary life of an African-American composer whom history almost left behind. pianist, what I love about Florence Price's music is that she's able to connect and synthesize these histories that you don't always hear brought together in classical music. So you hear a lot of the romantic influence of composers like Brahms and Liszt and Chopin and Schumann. And you you also hear her African-American heritage, which sometimes you, you might hear it in in the form of jazz in classical music, if we think of composers like George Gershwin, for example. But to hear an influence that actually goes back much further to the the slave songs, basically, is something that really stood out to me. And the fact that she treats this history so sensitively and so creatively in her own writing was just really inspiring to me. I'd never really heard that before. I must say, I'm not remotely expert on music, but... I first heard an extract of Florence Price on BBC Radio 3. I think it was a programme you were involved in, actually. And I didn't know who it was, because like often, often with the radio, you turn it on partway through something. And I thought, well, that's Chopin. But then it wasn't. It was Florence Price. So I'm glad you mentioned that, because it makes me feel as though I wasn't totally dumb when I first heard the music. But I've listened to a lot of it since then, thanks to the wonderful production you've done of her piano music. Can we go back to her beginning? So Florence Price was born in Little Rock in Arkansas in 1887. What was her upbringing like? Her upbringing was, well, relatively privileged for for a Black family at that time. And so her father was born to free men and free women. And so that, in a way, helped him establish himself within the professional class because he was educated, he could read, he could study, and he was able to navigate, you know, very hostile racial conditions. And he was able to train as a dentist and 
he was also a lover of the arts. He painted, he, he was a scientist. And so Price's upbringing was one where, you know, the intellectual and the creative came together in her, in her home and lots of political figures would pass through. So I, I think of her home as a, um, a salon, essentially, where she's absorbing all of these rich influences and when we understand that as her upbringing, I think we can see how it became that she was able to pursue a career in classical music. Yes. And her mother was a piano teacher. Is that right? So did her mother teach her the piano in the first instance? Her mother was an educator, a soprano and a piano teacher. And this was very common for middle class women of colour. I mean, so many, so many black women at that time were working you know, in agriculture or as maids and and in these various domestic roles. And so the fact that Price's mother was able to find an existence outside of that, again, helped shape Price's, you know, trajectory as a a classical composer. Yes. And just for, for context for the listeners, born in 1887, so growing up in the era of the Jim Crow laws of segregation in the Deep South, uh, of uh, lynchings periodically, of real hostility from some sections of the white Southern society to African-American men, women and children. Exactly. And it's interesting because after the Civil War, Arkansas was seen as actually a, a haven for African-Americans. I know that we have this idea of the Deep South being just terrible all over, but Arkansas was seen as a as a paradise, basically. But then the Jim Crow laws began to affect all sectors of black society. So it wasn't just the poor working class African-Americans who, you know, were feeling the fullest effect of Jim Crow. It began to affect prices, you know, class as well. And that's why by the 1920s, the prices eventually moved to Chicago in what was called the Great Migration. So, and that was that was after she had married in 1912. But at some point, when she was a teenager, people must have noticed her talent in music. And she, she I think she got into college in Massachusetts somewhere. Is that right? To, to study. That's correct. So, actually, she was composing by the age of three, and so many people around her, um, especially the passing musicians that would stay in the Price home because hotels weren't available to them because of their race. They would come in and they would play music with her. And she, I think, absorbed a lot about composition and creating her own sound and style through these, you know, various influences around her. And she eventually went to the New England Conservatory of Music, which the Price biographer Ray Linda Brown identifies as essentially a finishing school for many women of Price's class. And basically, she went there to study organ performance and piano pedagogy. But she was still composing at this time and ended up securing a scholarship to study with the director of the conservatory. So composition, we see, is a huge part of her life almost consistently. And then, as you said, after she was married, she moved to eventually moved to Chicago uh, at the time of the Great Migration of many African American families moving from the Deep South to northern cities. But Chicago is probably the perhaps the most significant uh, destination. I think while she was there, her marriage broke up. So her husband was a lawyer, and he really struggled to find consistent employment, and it 
created a lot of tensions and it led to a lot of violence on his part towards her. And it was an incredibly stressful time. Her finances were depleting as well. And I think one of the things about Chicago, though, is that Price had a community there. She had a network. And so when her marriage eventually crumbled, she was able to stay with friends. She was able to continue composing. And that network really came you know, to her to her rescue um, to help her get back on her feet. And, and she, she had, as you said, she'd been composing since childhood. But in 1933, her symphony made history, didn't it? She was the first black American woman composer to have a, a, a symphony performed by, I think, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. How did that happen? That must have been a great moment for her. Yes. So it goes back to her network. There was a woman called Maud Roberts George who was she's an African-American woman and a real society woman. She was married to a judge who was very prominent in both black and white circles. So she was very, very connected. And she was the president of the Chicago Music Association. And so this was an association that encouraged African-Americans to pursue classical music, whether as composers or as performers or as teachers. And it was a network that actually expanded into a national network, um, of which she was also president. And so she had the contacts and the knowledge of securing contracts for artists. And she entered a contract with the conductor of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, Frederick Stock, and she underwrote that performance. So without her advocacy, this performance wouldn't have happened. I think there's this sense that, you know, the Chicago um, Symphony Orchestra, out of the goodness of their hearts, gave this platform to Florence Price. But actually, there was a real strategy at play. And obviously, this is something that your your book covers, you know, these strategies that are happening beneath the surface to manifest these groundbreaking experiences. Can you just characterise her body of work? I mean, she wrote an awful lot of music. She wrote symphonies and she wrote lots of piano music what would what, what you for, for the for the listener who's never heard of Florence Price and they wanted to look something up what would you say were the three or four pieces that people should look for I strongly suggest starting with the symphony number one in E minor on the one hand it's beautiful but this is where you know the history making really begins This was the first piece by Florence Price that I ever heard back in 2009 when I was studying. And I think we'll talk about that a bit later. But I was just blown away by this, this effusive and decorative and elaborate pianistic language. But also the melody borrows directly from a spiritual. And that these were the songs that were created basically by the enslaved on the plantations. And so the fact that she's able to bring this and, and put this melody sort of front and center in her own musical language is just absolutely incredible. And so I think in listening to this piece of music, if you can imagine yourself in this audience hearing this music and hearing just just how impactful it was for a Black woman's music to be given such a huge platform, I think is quite an incredible, well, very incredible thing. 
So I recommend the symphony number one in E minor, and you're going to hear a lot of her influence in terms of the the German symphonic tradition, but also African-American folk songs as well. And then there are three other symphonies. So, you know, you can go through those in order if you like. I have a strong piano bias, so... (laughs) After her death, many years later, in fact, somebody in 2009 bought a house that had been her summer house outside of Chicago, and they found in the renovation of that house a whole stack of her previously unpublished music Uh, and I think that's been important to you personally but it's also obviously important for her can you just describe that it seems like a a wonderful story yes the couple that purchased that house noticed that there were sheets of music that said Florence B Price and they noticed that this was recurring and I think it's just it's miraculous that you know this couple was able to ascribe value to that without knowing who she was but to know that there was something worth pursuing. And so the University of Arkansas, they already house a number of price papers. So they naturally acquired this and organized it. And so, you know, up until that point, musicologists like Raylinda Brown, who I've mentioned already, were operating with a knowledge that there were possibly, you know, these other manuscripts out there but they didn't know where. And so this is almost like the final piece of the puzzle, basically, that sort of confirms everything that, you know, the earlier musicologists knew about Florence Price, that she was a prolific composer. This symphony number one that she wrote wasn't just a one-off. She was incredibly masterful. So all the all the pieces and all the snippets that we had into who she was as a composer have really come to light with this trove. And, and the next stage now is for us to really spend time with that, um, as Ray Linda Brown says, and to to record this music and to to see what kind of narratives we can draw out of it. So it's going to hopefully lead to a revival of interest in her music, maybe. And so this is where you come in because you've had a career in music as well. You're obviously dedicating your time to playing and studying her music along with other um, African-American women of the first half of the 20th century. And I believe you've reconstructed her third fantasy negra, is that right? And what, what does reconstructing a piece of music mean to a layperson who, who, who doesn't do this all day, every day? What have you actually done when you say you've done that? So with this third fantasy, what I knew was that it was incomplete. That, that was all I knew about the piece of music. So it wasn't until I got to the University of Arkansas that I actually saw what incomplete meant. <laughs> and so a reconstruction is, it depends on what's available to you. So up until that point, I didn't really know what I would be doing because I didn't know what the status of the music was. And so when I saw this incomplete score, what that means is that I, I, there were two pages of music and then there was absolutely nothing. And so my initial thought was, okay, let's see if I can find the rest of the music. Um, because so much has been recovered through the, you know, these formerly missing papers. So the rest of the music has to be there. So I was very optimistic. What I did is I, I had to go through the music in my mind and try and hear it and think, okay, what might Florence Price say 
next. And so because I've performed so much of her music before, I had an idea of, of where things could go. And so I started looking for other sheets in the archives that might fit, and I couldn't find anything. So I went back to those two sheets of paper and thought, okay, well, maybe I am projecting an idea that actually isn't the reality here. So I went over the music again and I saw that actually there was a different possibility for how this music could continue. So in a way, I had to open my mind to different possibilities, to the fact that, you know, what I assumed was incorrect and, you know, sort of try again. So I I looked and I had my mind open to different possibilities and I found music where I thought, actually, this this could be it. And I guess this is where I had to really trust myself um, because I, Florence Price isn't here to say, yep, that's it, you know, and to confirm. And so I found music that continued. I found music that also linked back to, to earlier ideas in the original two sheets that I'd found. And so when I played this music at the piano, that's when I really felt the pieces coming together. And it was just such a wonderful experience. And as a pianist, I thought, you know, I will never be 100% sure if this is what she intended. But my job as a pianist is to really communicate this in, in as convincing a way as possible. And I want people to hear this complete story. And so everything that you hear is 100% her voice. There's the question mark, of course, you know, is this what she intended? But I think that's that's the beauty of having performance as well, of having this creative side where you can put out your own interpretations and uh, and hope that people enjoy it. One of the stories in my book is uh, actually of another Oxford academic, Jane Meller, who is a biochemist at Queen's College. And when I asked her what she did all day, and she said, I go into the lab with an open mind. And it sounds like exactly the same pattern occurred here with the music. You were going down a particular track, and then that wasn't leading anywhere. Then you went back to the original, and you, to use your exact words, opened your mind, and that ended up in a, a creative breakthrough. But this is a wonderful story. So just let's go back in your own life. How did you get into playing the piano? Well, I think like Florence Price, I the piano was there, and I just took to it. Um, and then my parents encouraged me to have lessons. Um, they encouraged me to continue when I wanted to quit, which I think is a common story for teenagers. Piano has just always been in my life, really. Um, but it wasn't really until university that I felt myself emerging a little bit more as a as a concert pianist. That was at Bristol, um, was it? That was your Bristol's where you did your bachelor's degree, wasn't it? Yes, that's correct. I, I always found myself drawn to the more obscure repertoire. And I think the reason I liked that was because I felt less judgment as a pianist. I remember at Bristol, you know, being encouraged to play in a certain way because that's how so-and-so had played it before. And there just wasn't really a lot of room for me to find my own voice. And so I, I definitely felt that performance would be something that I would continue with, but I was definitely sort of struggling and finding, um, I guess, solace in obscure composers, but they were mostly men. Yeah, I suppose if you um, play the Moonlight Sonata, everybody's going to 
know what they expect it to sound like. Whereas if you take these relatively recently discovered or slightly more obscure people, you can interpret it yourself. It's, it's a more creative moment, perhaps. That's exactly it, definitely. And I guess, you know, I think to grow as a pianist and to grow in maturity means, you know, to experience the music for yourself as opposed to playing in the shadow or in imitation of someone else. Again, going back to my book accomplishment, um, one of the people I talk about in there is Dennis Bergkamp, the footballer, the Arsenal footballer, and just how much he practised to get as good as he got. You're a busy person, both academically as a teacher and as a researcher. Do you have time to play the piano regularly? Yes, I practice about five days a week for three hours. And when I'm not at the piano, I, well, and when I'm not at the piano and I'm not writing, I'm thinking about the music. I run in the mornings and I, the notes are floating around in my head. So there's a lot of practice happening away from the instruments as well. But yes, I'm very disciplined about it. What would you think of as your own personal greatest accomplishment so far? Obviously, it'll be, there's a whole lifetime ahead of you. But, but so far, what do you think your greatest accomplishment is? I would say my greatest accomplishment is persevering with this work, even when no one was really paying attention. I think it's wonderful that there's this great Florence Price revival that's happening at the moment. When I first knew that I wanted to pursue a career that went beyond the canon, I had a professor say, well, the work that you want to do will never be marketable. Well, that, that's, that wasn't my priority. I just felt very passionately about this. When I started playing, getting back into performance again, there were certain people saying, well, you know, are you really a pianist? This isn't really what you do. You know, what are you doing a PhD for? <laughs> and I guess not, not taking my work seriously, not taking me seriously, but I continued and I, I really believed in what I was doing. And at the moment, it's wonderful to see how it's all come together. But I, I remind myself that it, you know, it wasn't always like that. And to, I mean, to be featured in the New York Times and the Telegraph is just wonderful. But I guess I'm proud of the fact that I would have done this anyway. And that's just a bonus. In, in the end, the test of accomplishment is whether you did the right thing for the right reasons, not whether you get recognition. Of course, it's nice to get recognition and acclamation and so on, but that's not, as you've been saying for yourself, it's not been your main purpose. You wanted it is because you thought it was important and you could make a contribution. But you persevered and now hopefully um, that, that this you, you've established Florence Price and maybe some other African-American uh, women composers still to come uh, uh, as a result of your ongoing work. What lessons would you draw from your own experience and from looking back on Florence Price for people who are studying music? I would encourage you to pursue what you're curious about. My PhD started out of my curiosity just to learn more about her life. I first learned about Florence Price as an undergraduate student studying abroad at McGill University in 2009. And a few years later, I just felt that I wanted to come back to her music. And so she began really as a passion project for me. I just wanted to know more about her. And that snowballed into my whole career. But that wasn't the original plan. It, it just began as curiosity. And that was very fulfilling to me. And so when I, I know that PhDs are incredibly stressful, but for the most, well, 
yeah, definitely for the most part, it was an absolute joy for me because I was able to travel to Arkansas and Chicago and just find out more about her life. And um, that then led to even more amazing experiences, such as playing her music in the venues where she used to play music. And, you know, those experiences are just so personally fulfilling. So certainly think about, you know, what makes you curious? What what makes you excited? What are you passionate about? If we step outside of music and just think about generalising about uh, great accomplishment, whether Florence Price's or your own, one of the things you've identified is um, following your passion. And another is not being put off by the critics or the sceptics. What other lessons would you pick out for people who want to get to, to do something really special, to accomplish something ambitious and challenging? One of the biggest lessons that I've learned from Florence Price is the importance of having a network, of having people who, um, who you can you know, bounce ideas off or people who can perhaps you know, sponsor you. To have the support network around you and to make sure that it's reciprocal as well. Um, because one of the, the really great things that has come out of my experience is that um, I am now collaborating with other Price scholars. So we have some uh, exciting books in the pipeline, for example, a Florence Price biography with Oxford University Press with my collaborator, Professor Douglas Shadle. And it's wonderful um, because you know, he's someone in my professional network. And because of that continued dynamic and, and reciprocity, we're able to work together and, and expand our shared vision around this work. And so I think that's another thing when you're doing something that's difficult to have other people that you can actually, you know, share those difficult tasks with and again, get back to the joy of the work that you're doing. The, the singer in my book, Nicola Sugden, she constantly says, I never do anything alone. So although she might be the only person singing on stage, in a, in a way she's her, used her network. That sounds like that's an important feature in your own in your own thinking and work. Yes, definitely. And there are people that I, I bounce ideas off all the time, long before I make these ideas public. You know, having that trusted circle where you can be more vulnerable and you know and if if you have an idea that perhaps needs more work then you've got that trusted network to give you that really honest feedback you know with the most positive of intent if you saw florence price as an exemplar accomplishing great things what would you pick out as the the things to learn from her life so florence price identified her passion very early on as a composer she continued to compose even though you know the guarantee of a major orchestra playing her Music wasn't always there. Um, the guarantee of publication wasn't always there, but she still did this work regardless. And it it is truly tragic that she's not around to enjoy the fruits of her labor. But I I think it her story shows that you know you never know what kind of seeds you're planting for future generations. And so, in a way, as you're pursuing, you know, something that is very challenging, um, very trying. It's not necessarily completely your story. There are other people who are going to benefit and, you know, you might not see it, but this work that you're doing is putting, you know, so much good out to to others. And so for that reason, it, it just really is worth persevering. 
Thank you. That is a, a beautiful thought to finish on. Thank you very much indeed for your conversation, Samantha. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Accomplishment Podcast and my thanks especially to guest Dr. Samantha Eggy. If you'd like to know more, her biography of Florence Price is due out in 2023. And you can find Florence Price's music at samantha.eggy. I'd love to hear your stories of change. You can get in touch with me on Twitter at michaelbarber9. There's also a book that accompanies this podcast, Accomplishment. It's available at all good booksellers. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss great game changers telling their stories of how to get things done. This podcast is produced by Siobhan O'Connell. Thanks to her and to the rest of the team.